Welcome to Cerebronas. I'm Cynthia. And I'm Yvette. And this is episode four. We're two Latinas from working class immigrant families navigating law school and bringing y'all raw critical analysis of case law, current events, and personal politics. Today we'll be talking about the arrest of Ismael Chamu by the Berkeley Police Department. For our deep thought segment, we'll have a conversation about race, specifically in response to poet Wendy Trevino's work and the article Mexican is not race, which is a conversation with her. For our case, today we're going to go into Hernandez v. Texas, a case where the Supreme Court held that Mexicans were a distinct class for the purposes of discrimination. As always, we'll end with recommendations. Before we get into the current events segment, we wanted to thank our patrons um, and the people who have supported us. Uh, and they are Abenicio Cisneros, Miguel Zavala, and Berenice Schierenberg. I apologize if I pronounced anyone's last name incorrectly. Okay, so let's get into our current event, Ishmael's arrest. Yvette, do you want to intro how we found out about this? Yeah, so this is something that I found out about through Facebook. Um, someone who's also in the National Lawyers Guild reposted it, uh, and it was the st- he reposted the direct statement from Ismail outlining the what occurred when he was arrested. And so Cynthia is going to read off the few of the excerpts that really uh, bring home what a terrible and traumatic experience this was. Yeah, and we'll post the full thing on our blog um, so y'all can read it. But I'll just read out a few excerpts. I am free. Tuesday around 2 a.m., I was detained by six Berkeley Police Department officers as my friend and I were walking through the Frat Row area on Piedmont and College Avenue. Police officers immediately ran towards us, and they handcuffed us on the spot, no questions asked. I proceeded to ask the officer why I was being detained, and his response was that someone had called about two male subjects suspiciously walking through the neighborhood and that we were burglars. They proceeded to take me to Berkeley City Jail. They fingerprinted me, strip-searched me. I have never felt more violated, frightened, and humiliated in my life. Every moment, I was fearing for my life. I begged my ancestors for help and peace. I prayed to God for freedom. They threw me into a jail cell. It was freezing inside, and I slept on a stupid little mattress and one blanket. I was kept locked up at the Berkeley Police Department jail for 30-plus hours. I kept asking for counsel and legal representation, but was never granted the right. The psychological torment was more than I could bear. I could not sleep. I was starving. I was freezing. I felt so alone and so detached. I got constant anxiety attacks and panic, but I was alone, no one there to help me but myself. I had no perception of time. Throughout the day, a Sheriff C. Tracy mocked me by putting both hands on his knees and saying, Tu no hablas español o inglés, tu little frijol, you a little bean. He would laugh and slap his knees. I felt so low and angry. They stole two days of my life. I missed a scholarship interview, a fellowship Skype interview, and work. I was kidnapped by armed agents. I was humiliated. I have been traumatized. I still feel shock and pain and anger. Cool. Thanks for reading that out, and thanks to Ismael for bravely sharing that trauma with us. Um, So I guess to start off, we should talk about why we felt like this was an important thing to highlight. Um, Do you want to start? Should I start? Um, Yeah, so I'll start by just kind of talking a little bit. 
about this talk that Yvette organized um, with the Frisco Five. And if you don't know them, you can just Google them and learn about them. But one of the things one of the speakers said that's really stuck to me is that like people think the Bay Area is perfect. People think like San Francisco is like this haven. Um, but that's not the case. Like there's the work isn't done there at all. And I think Ishma's um, arrest and his um, description of it just really emphasize that that like the Bay Area is not immune to police brutality by any means. Definitely. And I, you know, in like a small way, understand why people have this perception of the Bay Area as like a haven for oppressed people, because I will recognize that there are laws in California and in the Bay Area in particular that are favorable as compared to places in the deep south. Like I'm thinking about protections for workers in particular, but we also have to really remember that the San Francisco Police Department, the Oakland Police Department in the Berkeley Police Department are the same as the police departments we hear about in cases like Philando Castile's. Yeah. Um, Yvette, do you want to kind of just go over some of the folks who've been brutalized by these p- police departments? Yeah. So we just like to say the names of um, the victims of these police departments because we won't forget them. Just these aren't, this is not an exhaustive list by any means. Um, but the people that we have here are Alex Nieto, Amilcar Perez Lopez, Mario Woods, Luis Congara, Jessica Williams, and I think it's also important to highlight all the victims of sexual abuse on the on the part of the Oakland Police Department, um, which has recently come to light. Yeah, um, Yvette, I think I've told you this before uh, several times probably at this point, <laughs> um, but this reminded me of an experience one of my friends a close friend of mine went through um and she was a Berkeley law student and she wasn't actually like she was arrested and like put in a car but she wasn't um like taken down to the jail but it was like a very similar experience and when she talks about it I can see just like how awful it was and how like just how much it affected her because she was just like walking to class and the police decided to stop her and detain her um, and or like handcuff her in front of like classmates, in front of professors. Um, and it just this as soon as I read this, I just like it automatically thought about that experience. Um, how even you can be <laughs> a Berkeley law student going to class and this still happens to you because you're brown. Yeah, and that's exactly why I felt like it was important to highlight the story, especially as two Latino women at a place like Stanford Law, because I don't want anybody to walk away with the illusion that being in these institutions will protect you um, from the violence that black and brown people face in this country. And Ismaila's experience and the experience of your friend at Berkeley Law perfectly exemplify that. Um, And like, it's super important to note because I think the schools sell you this idea that you're going to become a good and likable brown person if you get a degree from these places. And at the end of the day, you're still a brown person in society's eyes. And so I just hope that that kind of structures the priorities that people have like while being in these institutions and then what they do afterwards with the power that they've gained from them. Yeah, I think... Um as someone who like always tries to remember my privilege or and acknowledge my privilege and like be accountable for it I definitely um will forget this and then I'll have moments that remind me of like how much anxiety I have as being a being a, a woman of color 
at Stanford Law. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, like, by no means have I gone through a similar experience as Ishmael or my friend. Um, but I just, like, we, I don't know. I feel like their stories, like, we know about them. They exist in our psyche. So even when we are in this white spaces, like, I constantly feel like I could be policed. I could be expelled at any moment. Um, you know, there's there's no one who would pick up the phone and, like, call Stanford on my behalf and, like, tell them that they're not going to donate if they don't, if they ex- expel me you know like just stuff like this I like realize like this world that I'm in like can be snatched away at any moment um because you know I wasn't supposed to be here in the first place yeah and I and I think like I have also um like after a certain amount of time come to realize that also and I think it was really beneficial for me to do so because I think it's just reinforced my commitment to my community because there's a lot of distractions that students of color are going to experience when they enter these spaces like these and I say distractions because in my mind they're just they're meant to lull you into thinking that white supremacy accepts you and I don't mm-hmm. think that that's true. And I think that there that people use the power that they gain from these institutions strategically in different ways. And I'm not knocking the ways that other people do it if it's different than the way that I do it. Mm-hmm. But I just think that you like it's really, really important to be mindful of the fact that, like you said, these institutions don't love you. There's the funders don't love you. No one's going to be calling, you know to say that you should be let back in i mean yeah there were there were the people who were going to call the people from your community but the, they're not going to be like yeah the the major donors that are going to be concerned about our place in in stanford and i think it's like a sad realization but i think it's ultimately a really important one and a really useful one yeah it in a weird way it like reminds me not to be like dumb you know like i don't know it reminds me to like I don't know. Sometimes you, you think, I don't know. Never mind. Whatever. I won't get into it. That's a conversation for another time. Um, <laughs> I think I knew where you were going, though. Like, yeah, like, keep your, you know, keep an eye out. Be smart. Yeah, because sometimes you, I just feel like, oh, it'll be okay. I can, like, do this dumb thing that another white person is doing. And it's like, no, no, I cannot. Like, <laughs> do not oh, do that dumb thing white person is doing. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah that's yeah. what I was going to. Um, but yeah, that's an, neither here nor there. Um <laughs> So one uh, thing I really liked about Ismael's, uh, when, like, what he wrote, I thought he wrote it so well. It's so powerful. It's so moving. Um, and I think we'll talk about this later in our other topics. But he has this line, right, that I read where he says, like, I beg my ancestors and then I pray to God. And mm-hmm. I just thought that was such a, like, a beautiful representation of how I even experienced my identity where it's like, it's like that you know like that's that's two different religions that's two different spiritualities like back to back like I begged my ancestors like that comes from a more I feel like indigenous um roots and like I prayed to God like that's the Catholicism right and I just like yeah like he's inhabiting like this whole everything he wrote like is so complicated we could say so much about it and just that line shows how he's like the different worlds he's inhabiting just like he's inhabiting being like at Berkeley with being a brown person you know it's just it just shows that juxtaposition of the of the different worlds yeah and i think that um sometimes latinx people forget the fact that things like 
Catholicism are a vestige of colonialism. And so I think sometimes statements like that can just go on like unanalyzed or just like not thought about. And so I really appreciated that you highlighted that for me because I totally agree. It's like something we're going to get into later and this really complicated reflection of Latinx identity. Um, but did you want to talk about um, Miranda and Terry versus Ohio and how the Supreme Court has recognized the indignity of being stopped in this way? Yeah, well, it's it's that exactly, right? So um, I feel like I constantly disagree with the Supreme Court and don't have a lot of hope in a future protected by the Supreme Court, especially now. Um, but there have been moments when the Supreme Court has done really, like, I think, like, important work in terms of recognizing, um, like, the indignity that comes from being stopped by the police on the street, like, for no reason. Uh, they, they, there's language about that. They've talked about it. And I'm not talking about, like, Sotomayor. I'm talking about, like, when Marshall was on the court before Marshall, right? In decisions like Miranda, in decisions like Terry versus v. Ohio. Um, but at the same time, it's like they, so it's like they recognize this. And so it's just like, I wonder, like, what would they nowadays, like, that court have to say about Ishmael's arrest and how he was treated? Like, you know, they if they thought being stopped on the street was like an indignity, like what would they have to say about strip search, like being strip searched and being like locked up and like woken up from sleeping, like, which is, you know, actually, um, Jesus, why am I forgetting this? I'm blanking on the word. <laughs> a torture tactic? Yes. Yes. A torture tactic. Thank you, Yvette. Uh, that's like legitimately torture, right? Yeah. And it's like at the same time, it's like, what would they have to say? And then I turn around, I'm like, oh, well, they have said plenty and they have said that this is okay. So it's just like this complicated relationship with the Supreme Court also where it's like they pretend like this law, these laws are protecting us and they recognize the harm it can do. But at the same time, they've moved away from that. Yeah, it's frustrating because there is a lot of language that recognizes the indignity, but then the holdings, like the things that actually determine how the law is going to play out and affect people, usually is um, upsetting for anyone who cares about the rights of um, people against police officers. Um, And I think like in terms of recognizing the indignity of stops, like I feel like I feel like white people don't really understand the effect that... um, the effect on your psyche when you're treated like a criminal. Yes. And I think like that's something that his statement really brought out. Um, I don't think we read this excerpt of his, but he said, um, he said at one point that I was not a teacher or a student or a scholar. I was, but a criminal Mexican in their fucking eyes. Yeah. And I, and that starts like that, uh, starts with the people who picked up the phone and made the call, right? Like, what, like, who, who, like, honestly, like, who made this call? Who was just like, oh, look, two brown people, like, they're walking suspiciously? Like, how does one walk suspiciously? Like, what are you doing that's suspicious? Like, what's suspicious is that they were brown and they were on the streets, but, like, they were on a frat row. Like, there are so many other people who are actually, like, do criminal behaviors on frat row other than just, like, walking at this late hour, like if if two white be- white men had been doing this, nobody would have picked up the phone and said they were walking suspiciously. Like that's such nonsense. So like even at that point, like he wasn't seen as any of those things, right? 
Yeah. And I think this like totally proves your earlier point about how you, you like say to yourself, don't be dumb as in like, don't do the dumb things that you see white people doing. Cause like, this is a perfect example of that. Like actually like, isn't it pretty common for people to be walking around late at night on front row? Isn't that what's expected? Isn't that like the quintessential college experience? Yeah. But you know, for Ismail, it wasn't. And it, like for Ismail doing what so many other white students do led to him having this traumatic, traumatic experience. Yeah. And also like, it's really frustrating. Like I, I think this has been what's like one of the most frustrating experiences of being in law school. It's like realizing how little the law protects you because like he constantly asked for a lawyer, you know, and like they completely were like, "Mm, no, at first it was like, okay, well, you're not actually arrested. So you don't have that right. And it's like, okay, sure. Like when you're just detained, yeah, the police can detain you for as long as is reasonably necessary to investigate, um, which is bullshit because it, it just doesn't allow there for be like a clear cut line of when you've been detained for too long. Uh, like no one's going to go to the Supreme Court, you know, and argue like they detained me for this amount of time. Like that, that case doesn't come up um, and it was unreasonable. Right. But it's like, once he was booked, he was very clearly arrested, like very yeah. clearly, like being booked, taken to the station, like that's an arrest, like make no mistake, that's an arrest. And they just like still didn't give him his attorney. It's just like, oh, well, like as someone who's trying to study the law to like protect people, like, well, like this isn't very inspiring or like make me think that a legal career is useful. Yeah. Yeah. It's. It is very upsetting because like the and this is it this just reminds me of like how upset I was all throughout criminal procedure, um, where we talked about like the fourth, fifth, and sixth sixth amendments, which all outline the rights that people have in interactions with law enforcement. And I learned like, oh yes, like if you say unequivocally that you want access to a lawyer, then you cannot be questioned until a lawyer is present. And like, you know, the standard for what, whether or not you're arrested is if a reasonable person would um, would feel as though they weren't free to leave. I think like the vast majority of people in these medical situation would not have felt like they were able to leave but this cop intimidates him and tells him that he's not arrested and that's why he doesn't have the right to a lawyer. And so it's there's just a disconnect between law and the books and how law actually impacts people's lives every day. And that's what's frustrating about being at a place like Stanford Law is that they're all like so many people there are totally down for this intellectual exercise of thinking about like law in the abstract and don't care at all that people's fourth fourth fifth and sixth amendment rights are being violated every day yeah um i think that's a great point to wrap up on this but is there anything else you want to add um no just that we'll post eastman's full statement on our social media and then it's worth reading yes i agree Okay, um, so for our deep thoughts, uh, Yvette, do you want to introduce who is Wendy Trevino and like how we got like how this whole topic came to us? 
Yeah. So Wendy Trevino is a poet, and she recently published a chapbook called Brazilian is Not a Race. And this article is in the New Inquiry. I just stumbled upon it and thought it was really dope. Um, So the headline of the article reads... Poet Wendy Trevino argues that a radical new Chicanx politics means forging an identity based on shared political struggle, not myths of racial racial homogeneity, an idea rooted in anarchist struggles along the Texas-Mexican border a century ago. Um, I think we also should define Chicano, Chicanx, in case people aren't familiar with that. And it's a term that came out of the 1970s, like Cesar Chavez, Brown Power Movement, and um, it was a response to the U.S. government's term Hispanic. Um, and um, it was like a desire to form a new political identity that recognized both Mexican roots and um, the lived experience of being a Mexican person in the U.S. And it's a very it's like a very political identity. Um, well, mm-hmm. I feel I don't. I haven't studied uh, anything about like Chicanx movements or anything at all, um, but in where like in my consciousness when I was growing up, like if you were Mexican and you were born in the U.S., you were Chicanx. Like period. Um, it was like like almost like a technicality over anything else. So um, I don't. I, yeah, but I again I haven't studied it, and I think the like. The, free the term actually came up earlier too because I've read somewhere when I was looking at like uh Cinco de Mayo history I read somewhere that like it was in like the early 1900s like 1920s 1930s early um it was the Chicano Chicanx movement then was like yeah there's so it's like it's a long phrase It, it goes back a long time in history I think oh wow that's really cool I didn't know about that earlier usage of it if I want to read up on that um, and I and like when you told me that like in your experience just to be Chicano meant that you were born here and that or that generations before you had been born here that did make sense to me because I feel like an important part of the creation of that word was recognizing your experiences within the U.S. Um, and how like living here has definitely shaped people's cultural traditions and like ways of being and living so that made sense to me um and like words are transformed and have different meanings in different contexts so yeah um Yvette do you want to kind of explain what Wendy's like what is her poetry about like what is she arguing what is she critiquing like what is she responding to Uh, So she's exploring the history of violence along the U.S.-Mexico border and beyond, and she tells stories of growing up in Texas and, like, internalizing the social racialized hierarchies that existed in her border town between Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, and she, like, juxtaposes that against how white people assume that all Mexicans are the same, and so she's, like, arguing that we really need to that it's really important for Latinx people to recognize the racial hierarchies that exist within our communities. And she responds in particular to Gloria Anzaldúa 
into her concept of mestizaje, which she argues is really dangerous because it erases black Mexicans first. And then also um, because it kind of romanticizes or at the very least erases the very violent history that led to mes- like mestizo people, which is rape and colonialism. Yeah, um, I've only read Ansaldua once in college, like my freshman year, um, and it was just like an excerpt. So, but like I remember that excerpt really spoke to me. And as I don't know, from what I understand, like Ansaldua is like very popular and very like, um, very just like esteemed, I guess. Um, so I was really surprised by this critique of her, and like I, I have to admit, like I've never like <laughs> thought about this before. You know, it's, I feel like it's kind of like, I feel like there's going to be a lot of people that are shocked at the concept of critiquing on Zaldua because she's like very, she's beloved by a lot of people. But I, I found myself agreeing with a lot of her arguments. Like, um, I don't, I was, I was drawn to the distinction that she was making. Like when she, she talks about how, so I actually haven't read this part of Ansel Dua, so I don't know like how fair this reading is, but she claims that um, like Gloria Ansel Dua talks about La Malinche as who as a survivor, and La Malinche is was said to be the person who gave birth to the first mestizo person. She was a Nawa woman who. Um, who gave birth to um, Cortez's son. And so I guess like the, this is like Trevino's beef is that like she claims that Anzal Dua doesn't do a good enough job of recognizing that um, like La Malinche was raped and that that situation was one of like unequal power. And she like... So I think this is what's controversial is that she like also critiques her like kind of praising La Malinche as like this survivor and then says that like it could be more apt to frame her as being a race traitor. Which is interesting because I don't know. I feel like Ansaldo has replied. I haven't read this either, but just like from what I hear, from what I, like, read, um, it feels like Ansaldua is, like, responding to this, like, constant, like, demonizing of La Malinche, right, um, as, like, as just, like, a, like, you know, like, it was just used so derogatory, right, and it's, like, if you were, like, yeah, like, if you were a traitor, you were, like, a Malinche and all this stuff, um, and so, like, I think Ansaldua was trying to take her out of that space, but I, like, I agree with the critique where it's, like, you know, like a romanticization of like the mestizaje, like if it ignores the rape and the violence that came along with it, like I can see why that's a problem. Um, and I think like my first reaction when I was reading this, Yvette, was just like, I've always, like, I don't understand my identity. Like, I don't, <laughs> I, I know that, like, I still struggle with it. Um, and I, re- and like, there's some things that I've said in my past that like, I'm very ashamed of. And I, but I'm like proud of the fact that I'm ashamed of them because it tells me that, okay, so I'm doing some work to decolonize myself, right? It's doing some work to like undo all the brainwashing that I've gone through because I've said like 
just awful things where I was like very like overly proud of like my Spanish heritage um and so now that I've moved away from that space like I've struggled into what space to move into because like I do have indigenous roots and I also have Spanish roots right um but it's like I can't I don't want to claim the Spanish because like Jesus Christ like I don't, <laughs> I'm not proud of them anymore like violent colonialist rapists like why would I want to be associated with that why would I be like want to uphold that um it's like I get it I have to be accountable for for their actions but at the and at the same time like I can't move into like just the indigenous roots because there are still a lot of indigenous um in like communities in Mexico that I can't say like oh yeah I was my family was a part of them like not in the last few couple generations at least um so I was very happy in like the mestizo, mestiza like space because I saw it as a, as a place where, yeah, like I was raised Catholic, but like my family and I still burn sage anytime we feel like uncomfortable, you know, like um, we still like, you know, all these other practices like with essential oils and like vaporu as being like the best medicine, like that I see as not coming from like that Spanish heritage. So I saw it like, okay, well, I'm, like in the mestizo place. Um, so I like, I don't know. I didn't know what to do as a response to like Wendy Trevino's like very valid critiques of mestizaje. I think that it like, I think that you're right to not fully claim either because doing so would be problematic. But I, and I, I don't even know if like Wendy, I don't know if she's suggesting that we come up with a different word, but I think she just wants people to recognize that history so that then we have more language and a better understanding with which to critique current racial hierarchies that totally exist within Mexico, within El Salvador and within like Latin America as a whole. And I think yeah. that, yeah, Go that ahead. for me was the, that for me, it just was the important takeaway, you know? Yeah, and I do, like, what what I did very much, like, appreciate was, like, how she, her discussion of wealth um, and how she's, like, c- like, comparing, like, the poverty of those who are living on the American side, like, the Mexican-Americans, the poverty, and then the, the wealth of Mexicans coming over the border to go shopping and the amount of money they, like, they, the wealth they had. Um, so I appreciated that because, like, that's a space I feel like I can critique, um, like I can I can understand because like <laughs> it's easier to be like well yeah I'm not wealthy like I understand like I understand that and like I understand like the conflicts the class conflicts makes sense to me um as an identity yeah I, I actually also loved how she talked about those wealth distinctions because she at uh, the same time as she was talking about that also pointed out how like for her, it was so weird living in this Texas town where white people were trying so hard to homogenize Mexicans and treat them all the same when like she as a Mexican-American person was, or I don't know how she identifies, so I don't want to name that for her, but as like a, as a Mexican-American person living in the U.S., uh, she was like really aware of the of like the wealthy Mexicans who would come shop and how she was aware of how they were different than her like she has a lot of cool little anecdotes where she talks about being at the mall and realizing that she was not wealthy like the Mexican girls that she saw paying with their parents credit cards um 
And like the reason I thought that was cool is because like she has this little excerpt that I found really powerful. She says, I don't give a fuck what Elizabeth Bishop said. Never did. You can like her. I'm just saying I don't care what she has to say about race. I will not center some racist settler woman's mistaken ideas about the world in order to make love and hate less complicated. And like I was just snapping at that because it's true. Like why we just should not be consulting white people about anything related to race (laughs) like why and and I feel like I I don't know I feel like it's if you're not conscious of that then it's really easy to adopt their viewpoints in in terms of like how you understand yourself and your community yeah I don't know like race is so complicated and like I think all the stuff she's writing about like just reminded me of that because yeah there's the wealth aspect right and like being Mexican, being Mexican-American is not a homogenous experience at all. Um, and we can, like, we can talk for days about the erasure of, like, Afro-Mexicans. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, at so, but at the same time, it's, like, and we'll talk about this more in our next, next segment. Um, it's, like, for the purposes of, like, are you allowed to be in this restaurant? Like, it doesn't matter if you're wealthy or not, right? And, like, uh, so, like, in that, in that space... It is homogenous. But at the same time, like, she also talks about these Argentinian classmates of her in high school who, like, her friend didn't even realize, like, they were Argentinian. He just, like, thought they were white. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, like, I don't, I mean, I don't know how much, if, like, class played into that as well. But for that, it's just, like, they weren't even read as part of the group, right? Like, of Latinx p- communities, So it's just like, it's complicated. It's just, it's so much depends on like, what conversation are you having? And like, what's the purpose of your conversation? And like, all of that matters when you're talking about race, because you can't just like talk about it as if it's something where we all use the same way. Yeah. And I like, I think what I really appreciate is that her chapbook really reminded me of how race differs depending on context. Like, a person who's read as black in the United States might not be read as black in Brazil, for example. And I think I just appreciated. And I also, interestingly enough, uh, Chief Justice Warren also, I think, had similar ideas. I don't know. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that at the next segment. But um, like one of the things that she said was, Uh, When I say race is relational, what I meant is people are racialized in relation to other people who have power. And like when you brought up the the story of the Argentinian uh, students that they went to middle school with that her friend was like shocked to find out were Argentinian. I think they exemplify that because they the quote that she has when she talks about them is they were white hung out with white people that's why you thought they were run-of-the-mill white people and so like because of like that social group that they were accepted into they gained power through their proximity to whiteness and that is the way in which race is relational like race depends on your relationships with other racialized people and the power that they have the power that you don't have in that exchange yeah no i i agree with that um i just wonder like i don't know in i don't know i wonder like in the context of would they have been served at a restaurant it's like yeah probably um if you ask them like what their ethnicity was like i don't know would they say white i don't know it's so interesting um 
one of the I ha- I had never heard of the San Diego plan until I was I read it in her in her chat book. Uh, in the line that she has, like explaining what it was, is just like take back Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, Wyoming, and California, annex six more states for an independent republic of Black people, return to the Apaches their land, kill all white American males over the age of sixteen. <laughs> And, like, I was just, like, what a comprehensive plan. Like, I also felt like it was good because it was, like, just considerate of all the other people who had claims to this land and who deserved it. Um, And, like, strong claims, very, very strong claims. But, and so I I did, like, a quick Google about it, Yvette. And so it's, like, this is from, like, the 1915s. So it's, like, very, like, early 1900s. And so this plan was, like, circulating and people heard about it. But it was never acted on. Like, there was, like, radical anarchists um, in the South who were, you know, like, espouting this plan. But they never actually acted on it. But in response, like, a bunch of white people murdered hundreds of Chicanos. And I just, like, I don't know. It just, like, it reminded me of how much, like, white violence gets to be invisible in this country and in this history. Where it's, like, they had a plan. And, like, what was white people's response? To actually go and murder a bunch of them. Like, they never actually did anything. They just had a plan. Right. I also, I, like, similar to you, thought that the San Diego plan was, like, really dope and how it recognized all of the different needs of communities. And then I was also wondering if, like they had a similar understanding of racial solidarity as what Wendy Trevino is trying to suggest that like race is about shared struggle and that that's why they should care about the Apaches and black people. Um, Cause that to me just seemed like that would be the logical outcome of a recognition of that. Um, yeah, no, yeah. I, I agree with you. Um, Unless you have anything else you want to add, I say we end on that note. Yep, sounds good. Okay, so for our final segment, um, Hernandez v. Texas. Yvette, do you want to just kind of intro this case? Like, um, what is this case about? Why is it important? Yeah, so this was a jury discrimination case, which I think is a nice continuation of our conversation about Batson from last episode. Um, And it involved a man named Pete Hernandez who was being tried for murder. And his lawyer was arguing that he was just that um, there was jury bias because he was a Mexican defendant and there were no Mexicans on his jury trial. And then they pointed out that no Mexican had served on a jury in that county in 25 years. Um, and the case is important because it's a predecessor to Brown versus Board, but it's actually much less talked about than Brown versus Board. Um, and the Supreme Court used it to finally extend constitutional protections to Mexican Americans. Uh, and then I thought it was cool because it proves that race is constructed. Like the Texas District Court, believe it or not, ruled that Mexicans are white. And so as a result, they weren't discriminated against because whites were serving on juries. Yeah, I think that was the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, which is like uh, the Supreme Court of the state of Texas for criminal um, cases. But yeah, the, I just like, uh, 
it's like that's what I mean by like race is so loose and fluid and like I I have such a hard time talking about race because it's like for this purposes these judges were like Mexicans they're white right but like for the purpose of like serving them in a restaurant like no you're not white you're Mexican so it's just like there's I there's just like no coherent way I think to talk about race well, I think it's weaponized in different ways, and that's why it's really confusing when we talk about it. And I also think it's confusing because most people haven't taken an ethnic studies course in which you learn how race is constructed and you like talk in depth about it and think about it for a long time. And like, I think people confuse race and ethnicity a lot, which just makes it all the more confusing. Um, but before we get more into like the holding of the case, I do just want to say that like before any assimilationist Latinx people get excited, the reason that the Texas court ruled that Mexicans were white was just because they didn't want to extend <laughs> e- <laughs> equal protection to Mexicans. Um, because like their argument was like, oh, well, we thought the 14th Amendment was just about treatment of white and black people. We didn't know it extends to others. But they had ruled in a different case where that it was extended to Roman Catholics. So it's a little sketchy. Yeah. Um, also, like, the there's in this case, like, it's a pretty short opinion if y'all want to go read it. Um, they discuss, like, the test for discrimination. And so what really comes out, the language is, like, a distinct class. And so it's, like, Mexican. The court doesn't hold that Mexican is its own race. They hold that Mexican is a distinct class. Um and they like they give like oh how do you define a distinct class oh well you can identify one through like community attitudes right and so they look they point towards signs that were saying like no mexicans served um the children of mexican descendants were segregated in schools so things like that like are what form this distinct class but like and then they have like a second step of like proving discrimination and that's where they point to like no member of this class has served on a jury for the past 25 years but um and but you bet the court has some more language right on like race that you liked yeah like i don't know so i don't know if like i'm impeding too much onto earl warren but i kind of felt like there was a hint at the fact that he was recognizing that race is constructed and that race is contextual um, because like when he was trying to analyze the position of Mexicans within that specific community in Texas, he noted that um, like first that throughout our history, differences in race and color have defined easily identifiable groups, which have at times required the aid of the courts in securing equal treatment under the laws. And then he says other differences from the community from the community norm may define other groups which need the same protection. And so it might be a stretch to say that he's he thinks that race is constructed and that in this instance, Mexican became a race um, because he says other differences. So he could like he could be in the camp of thinking that Mexican is an ethnicity or is like a cultural tradition. I don't know what exactly people say, but um, I felt that just the fact that he could recognize that like what produces oppression is the the ways in which those with power enact it on those without was really important because I I think that to me is like the clearest definition of race is like you become racialized when you become sub when you as in the process of becoming subjugated um yeah yeah. I I don't know I I guess I disagree just because like 
I don't know. At the same time, though, like, I haven't taken ethnic studies or any of this other stuff. But um, still, like, w- like thinking race like that for me is, is difficult just because um, it becomes too broad for me. Like, where, like, I wouldn't racialize someone based on class. Um, but, like, by your definition, I feel like that, like, in the process of being oppressed due to class basis, like, you would be racialized. Um, and so, like, I, I don't, I don't read the court as doing that. I feel like the court, like, they didn't expand the definition of race. I feel like they expanded the definite, like, what equal protection protects, and that's, like, distinct classes. Um, but that's just, like, that's just my opinion. That's how I read it, and I think it's, it's tied back to how I understand race. Yeah, I, so, like, um, we read that article by Ian Hini Lopez where he talks about how, um, Brown versus Board failed because they, like, the justices in that decision recognized that disparate treatment on the basis of race is um, illegal um, and codified that through that decision. But then he, like, his point is that in this earlier case, actually, like, the marker of whether or not you're going to be protected by the 14th Amendment was whether or not you were oppressed. And I think that it's difficult to define, but race is difficult to define. So I don't think that that makes it um, any more difficult than what currently exists. And I think that that's an important distinction because because of the fact that in Brown, they just dis- they just defined the issue as being about disparate treatment on the basis of race. Then mm-hmm. that's why white people can sue for discrimination. Mm-hmm. And... I think that like that's just a fundamental misunderstanding of like what racism is like white people can't experience racism because racism is prejudice plus power and so like it's white people's prejudice is racist because they have power in the society um, yeah 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 so I'm I, th- with I you think there. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I guess no, I don't yeah I guess I, I'm with you there, uh, and, like, I, I understand, like, we were talking earlier, I understand, like, that race and being racialized has very real impacts on your life, has very real impacts on, like, your healthcare and all these other things. Like, I, I completely recognize that, but I, at the same time, like, I definitely feel like race, like, is also very defined by the government, um, so, like, on the census, like, they, like, well, I don't even know what the options are for under race but I know they're very limited to the point where like I've been always told to just check off white and then there's like a whole second category where then I put Chicano or Mexican-American or I put Latinx Latino or Hispanic usually actually because the government uses Hispanic foolishly um but so it's like even the government I feel like very much limits how we understand race so um I was talking like Yvette, I really honestly think we should do this experiment of ask people like and like change the wording accordingly based on like who we're asking. But like I I I would bet like ten bucks <laughs> um high stakes that like if you ask like a white passing um Latinx person, right? Like, oh, um, are you white? They would say no. But if you ask them like what race are you, they would say white. Cause I feel like that's how like um 
not like how limited the our our understanding of race is because of the government but like if you switch it up into like talking about people's culture or ethnicity like then you'd get like a much more diverse or creative or personal response um but i don't know i think asking those two questions would would show how we how we act like that race isn't i don't know like that's how i think about race and maybe that's why i'm projecting but i feel like that's how i think about it in my experience like white latinos are very confused about what their race is and they're very confused about like how they relate to the latinx community because of these imposed ideas about what it means to be latinx um which is why i would also be curious about what such an experiment would would prove um and i do agree like i think your point about how the government structures how we think about race i think totally feeds into my earlier point about how about the ways in which race is constructed um because like the state has a definite role in constructing race and if people want to think more about this then ian haney lopez has this book white by law that is worth reading where he he like talks about various ways and different points in which through case law um the law has constructed our understandings of race. And I think like even even this case that we're talking about right now is an example of how the law does construct race because I don't know. I mean, it's complicated because like you said, the holding isn't that Mexican is a different race. The holding is that Mexican is different class and is treated differently as such. But I kind of feel like that's just the farce. Like, di- like, Mexicans were recognized and treated as distinct. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I, I've also seen this language a lot in terms of like asylum work. So like distinct social groups is like mm-hmm. um, what is protected under asylum law um, on, a to- on top of like the other categories like uh, religion and stuff like that. Um, so it's like, I don't, I guess I have like, I wouldn't describe it as a farce just because like this language is, is how we do discrimination work, right? Like you prove your distinct class and like you have a definable group with like shared characteristics and shared experiences. Um, so I don't, I see this language like very uh, cemented in the law. Um, one thing I wanted to also point out that I found really interesting and hilarious about this case, and y'all, I, I recommend to read, uh, is that like the state. So, like, the defendant came on and was like, look, no member of this class has served on a jury for the past 25 years. And, like, the state, the prosecutor, was just like, oh, well, here's testimony from the jury commissioners who said they were choosing the most qualified jurors and were not discriminating. Uh, And the court was just like, seriously? Like, this is all you have? Like, if we just go with based on, like, what you say you're doing, then, like, these constitutional provisions would be a vain and illusory requirement. So, like, it just, it, it watered down these rights to an illusion. Uh, like, one, I think the state, like, lit- legitimately believed those jury commissioners that they were just like, oh, I'm not discriminating. Like, I'm just choosing the most qualified, but not recognizing all the bias and the racism and discrimination that goes into that statement in and of itself. Um but I was also, it was just like another one of those moments where I'm like, yay, court, like not just buying what someone tells you at face value. But at the same time, I think back to our conversation about Ismail's arrest and I'm just like, these rights are an illusion. They exist only 
for some people and not everybody because where was his right to counsel? Like, just completely denied. Yeah, I also think this is like a, like that response about how they were just picking the most qualified jurors is like, um, I think, the precursor to preemptory strikes and like the, all the justifications used for jury striking. I think it's very similar. But I actually wanted to go back to the conversation about whether or not like the law, like whether or not like in this holding them saying that Mexican wasn't a race, it was a distinct class is artificial or not. Because I think that like most legal categories are artificial, like thinking about asylum, um, some that's like the current work that I'm doing now. And being real like these categories exist of like political asylum race ethnicity gender and then these like things called particular social groups which are discrete groups that the courts have defined Mm -hmm. and like the thing is that like most like people want to come here because there's violence in their countries and then they also want to come here because they like want an opportunity to like they want an ability to gain socioeconomic mobility like that that drives so much of why people come but we can't say that and so like when you're advocating for your clients like you're just and like like people experience violence based on gender and violence based on race um but like people's lives don't fit neatly into those categories and so there's always there's always a little bit of um it's about framing, um, I guess you would say. And so that's why, I don't know, that's why I do think that these categories are artificial and like like what the state deems to be a race or not, I think is artificial. And I think it's I think we need to be aware of how, like the role that the state plays in creating race. And then also recognize, like even if they don't recognize that Mexicans are racialized, that Mexicans are racialized. Yeah, yeah. Um. But, like, so you were telling me earlier about, like, biological truths, right, and how race is, like, changing again in, like, the um, mass psyche. And so, like, I, do you want to talk about that? Like, just, yeah, what yeah. you were telling me? Yeah, that, like, I think um, that it's, like, that's things like 23andMe have become really popular recently and I think it's showing that we're reverting that like one that people haven't really internalized or accepted the idea that race is socially constructed and we're reverting back to this understanding of race as a biological truth like just so that everybody knows like there is no gene there's no cluster of genes that is specific to all black people or to all white people or to all latinx people um and so like really the like the ways in which these phenotypical features end up mattering is because like um the state and like white people treat people of color distinctly because of these phenotypical features and that's why they come to have significance but it's there's like nothing in your genes or um that likes that like you can point to to say oh yes this proves that you are mexican yeah so that both like helps me understand like that's part of why i feel like well like i don't know why like i have a hard time like 
stepping outside of like what the government has defined as race because it's like well whatever like someone's got to define it right because it's like a totally socially constructed thing like it doesn't it doesn't have any any like it's nothing else right and at the same time like though it like I understand why it's like race isn't a noun it's a process it's like a it's a verb of being racialized um in which like I guess like the more I think about it in that way and like stay in that space like I could see I, I don't know I just like I go in circles when I'm thinking about this because I just yeah maybe I just need to read more no I think that's a that's like such a brilliant way to put it I think that that's that should be how it's explained to people in like two seconds that like race is not a noun it's a verb it's about being racialized I think that's great because like I think what's hard for people to understand is that race isn't static but like it like um, a way to think about this historically is like for example Italians and Irish people weren't considered white at the turn of the 20th century they um, like lived they were like marginalized in a lot of ways that people of color are like lived in segregated neighborhoods didn't have access to resources and then over time came to be accepted as and seen as white and now like you know I don't I think less and less people distinguish like oh I'm Irish I'm Italian people just say I'm white but like Mm -hmm. before oh Italian or Irish person would never have said that they were white like they would have said I'm Italian or I'm Irish yeah and I just want to add that wasn't that also in response to like wanting to segregate like wanting to um adopt Italian and Irish as white as a reaction against like um letting Italians and Irish like kind of be in solidarity with black people over class right so it's just like separating class by heightening race yeah I like don't know the exact history of that but that sounds right to me Okay, well, let's end on that. Uh, Hopefully that gave you guys a good idea. Gave y'all, sorry. Gave y'all a good idea of this case and how complicated race is. So do you want to do your recommendation? Yes. So my recommendation for this week is... um, I recommend y'all listen or watch a talk by Jeff Robinson from the ACLU. So he came to speak at a training that I had for my internship and it was really, really amazing. Like he just, he was talking, like he just presents a really coherent, um, just history of, of like, you know, like what, like slavery and the Jim Crow and like policing and um, mass incarceration, like, it's just such a great presentation. Um, I was able to find one video of him that's similar to the talk he gave me, so I'll post that on the blog so folks can find, but I would just, uh, suggest him as an interesting and really, uh, inspiring person to read about or, like, learn about and listen to. Super dope. Um, so I'm gonna recommend the book that I mentioned earlier, Um, by Ian Haney Lopez it's called White by Law and in that book he just um, lays out various examples of the ways in which the legal system is responsible for constructing race and then also I think people should read the chat book that we were talking about by Wendy Trevino Brazilian is not a race it was the poems were really dope I agree I agree well Yvette this is the end of another episode always lovely to be in community with you Woo! yes it has been lovely 
and oh yeah we didn't even mention it's the fourth of july bye bye Control the whole street, and when it's time to bust, they don't get cold feet.